Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. He ran. Adolf Eichmann was his name. During the days of World War II, Eichmann was the architect of Adolf Hitler's final solution to exterminate the Jewish people from Europe. He masterminded the Nazi death camps to help eliminate six million people. Auschwitz, Treblinka, and other death camps got their start in the mind of Adolf Eichmann. When Germany was finally defeated in in World War II was one, Eichmann ran. He escaped into hiding in Austria, and then with the aid of a Franciscan monk in Italy, he received an Argentine visa and a falsified Red Cross passport. In 1950, he boarded a steamship to Buenos Aires, where he went under the alias Ricardo Clement. Eichmann lived uh, his days with his wife, his four kids in a Buenos Aires suburb working for a Mercedes-Benz plant, always with his eye over his shoulder. For nearly two decades, he uh, lived as the world's most wanted Nazi until Israeli special forces found him and brought him to justice in 1960. Eichmann ran. Have you ever tried to run? Have you ever been tempted to run? Have you ever been tempted to run away from your past, your reputation, what you've done? He ran too. His name's Samaj Booker. He had a terrible home life, to be honest. His dad abandoned the family. Uh, he lived with a lot of physical abuse, emotional abuse, a lot of neglect even from his mom. Uh, he escaped the pain most days with video games. And one day he decided to escape his pain for good. So on January 14th, 2007, nine-year-old Samaj Booker saw that his neighbor's 1986 Acura was idling in the driveway, and he jumped in. And he took off, started driving. He said he learned how to drive on video games. And as he drove through town, the police officers discovered him pretty quickly. When he saw the red and blue lights flashing in the uh, mirror, he decided instead of pulling over to go faster, 90 miles an hour. Finally, that old 86 Acura, the engine died. But even then, he wouldn't leave the car. The police had to smash the windows in order to to, to get him out of the car. And his mom, tired and overwhelmed from, I'm sure, a child who had lots of energy, she told the police, if he's in trouble, just don't bring him home. But they were forced to. Within a few hours of coming home that day, he ran again. He jumped on a bus to get to the airport. He went to the Southwest Airlines counter. He said uh, his mom was on the other side of security in the, in the terminal, and uh, he, he gave a last name of a passenger on there, and so they printed him a ticket. Got through security, didn't need ID under the age of 18, got onto the plane. Uh, the flight took off. A lady on the flight even shared her music with him during the flight, and he made it all the way to San Antonio. And there he was trying to get on another plane when finally security figured something was not quite right about this. He ran. Now, as for why he ran away, Samaj says it wasn't because he hated Washington State where he grew up. It, it was, uh, he hated his, uh, his neighborhood in Tacoma. Uh, he said he wanted to see his grandpa in Dallas. I wasn't running away from my mom. He said, I was running to a better place. Have you ever tried running to a better place? Uh, he ran too. I mean, the heat, heat was on. 
Uh, sure, Jesus uh, had been uh, drawing the attention of Jewish authorities for quite some time. There were death threats. It was tense. But when the soldiers showed up to arrest Jesus, it got real. Judas, you know, led the soldiers into the garden, and he kissed this rabbi on the cheek, and there was a scuffle with the sword, and a man lost his ear, but Jesus healed him, and then they arrested Jesus, and Matthew said, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. They ran. John Mark, uh, or Mark even adds that one, one young man, maybe even John Mark himself, uh, fled in such a panic, the soldiers grabbed him, and he ran out of his linen tunic, naked and afraid. They ran. Peter ran. Is it any wonder that Peter ends his letter with a key directive to the scattered and maybe battered Christians around the Roman Empire that were feeling the heat of their secular society all around them? The one who ran when hostility around Jesus grew more and more fierce thinks about all of his brothers and sisters in these churches and after the shame of his own desertion, after the guilt of his own denials, he points to these believers in a new way. He tells them, we don't run, we stand firm. Here's how I put it, 1 Peter chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be looking there. and It's on page 983 in those pew Bibles in front of you or in the um, version app. You can follow along or on the screens. This is what Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Do you hear his heart? Resist the devil. Stand firm. Don't flee. He's saying to them, I know what you're going through. I know it is not a walk in the park. I know that when our enemy, the devil, gets busy and people start mocking you in your faith and people, coworkers, start making fun of you because you're not lying on your time card like everybody else to get some more money and people start mocking you and say, oh, you must be the good Christian girl because you don't do the same things they do. He says, I know the easiest thing to do is to run from your faith. But he says, not us. We don't run. We stand. Take some clear thinking, he says. Verse 8, be alert. Already twice in his letter, the short letter, he said the exact same thing. Be alert. We need some clear-headedness. We need to be free from the confusion of our commitments or uh, over-dependence even on our emotions. He uses a word here which described a soldier stationed on watch for his enemy. Peter reminds us to wake up, to put aside lethargy and apathy. He says here, quit sleeping on this culture because our enemy is prowling around and he loves to hide. Our enemy loves to hide these days behind Screens, what we watch, what we read, what we fill our minds with. Our enemy loves to hide behind busyness in our lives. He loves to hide behind procrastination. Oh, sure, worship Jesus and grow in your faith. Absolutely. Sacrifice for the kingdom and give and go. All of that. Do all of that. Just do it someday. Don't do it today. And Peter says, no. When the lion's on the prowl, that is no time to sleep. Wake up, church, he says. Wake up. Be alert. Be ready. We are at war until the very end. There is no time for a nap because, he says, the enemy seeks to devour us. Well, that's a fun picture, isn't it? 
It's the same image of, of uh, drinking something down. It's a picture of a beast swallowing its prey. It's the, the, the word, the same word is used here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the big fish that swallowed Jonah. Your enemy wants to swallow you whole. Be alert. And when everything inside you screams, run, don't run. We don't run. We stand firm. Paul says the same. He told the Christians in Ephesus, he said, Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Do you hear him? Or James says the same thing to his readers in James 4.7, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. He runs. We don't run. Even Jesus would offer his perspective, John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. All this, he says, I have told you so that you will not fall away. You won't run. We are a people, Peter says, who stand firm, even in a culture that may mock us. We stand firm when the heat of hostility starts cooking around here. We stand firm when our Christian morals are maybe not reflected in political decisions or favorable tax exemptions disappear from Christian generosity. We stand firm. We don't run. And yet, let's be honest, how many times this week have you find yourself running? (laughs) So easy, man. I feel it. Maybe for you it's a a group of coworkers or friends, you know, and maybe they're not even believers in Jesus and they're putting a lot of pressure on you. Hey, you should come with us to to happy hour after after work today. And you know they drink too much and they get too crazy and it's too much. But, man, you just, you don't want to, like, annoy them or irk them. And so you're just tempted to sort of run away from your own commitments and... Or maybe you feel it, you know, maybe you're in a relationship with a guy and he's putting a lot of pressure on you to to do something more than you want to do physically in that relationship, but you don't want to make him mad. And so you're tempted to sort of run away from your faith commitments and life in Jesus. She ran. She grew up in church with her family. She jumped into college, though. Uh, All of a sudden... uh, She followed what was socially acceptable instead of what was biblically respectable. She puts it this way. I rounded one too many bases with one too many baseball players during my early years in college, pawning off my value in desperate hopes of feeling loved, giving men my body in hopes they would give me their hearts. And somehow I, the smart, well-mannered, high-achieving, churched girl, was drowning in my choices. Moisam is her name, LSU soccer athlete. She ran. She would eventually run back to Jesus, but for a long time she ran from him. But, but we, we don't run. Even when the generations disagree in our church, we stand firm together. Now, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share with you in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, 
not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. Now, you know, you've been around long enough to know that the easiest thing to do when there's conflict in the church is to run. You run away maybe to a group of friends or a group of allies and you complain together and you talk together and you rally together or maybe you run to a different church and you run or maybe even run away from church. Some people say, you know, I love Jesus. I just hate the church. You know, I love, I love Jesus. I just don't like his bride, the church. And I'm afraid that the devil just laughs and he says, yes, run, run, run. And he chides us. So Peter turns his attention first to the older leaders of the congregation because when the pressure hits the group, then, of course, the leaders are ones who feel it the first. And he tells them how to stand firm. He says, be shepherds. He says, watch over the church. This is the work of oversight. Even the language is helpful here. Uh, this uh, Greek aorist verb here, uh, it's an, maybe an aggressive idea. It shows that something needs to be done with new, renewed vigor here, not just the regular old routine. Keep doing this well. Keep watch over the flock. And yet, even elders and church leaders face the temptation to run. This is what it looks like. He says, be shepherds, verse 2, not because you must, but because you're willing. You know, elders and church leaders and group leaders and teachers, they, they can run by thinking of their ministry as something forced on them. You know, the, the pressure to, to pastor and lead and to love people where they're at, and then the added pressure of your family feeling some of those uh, pressures, and then societal pressure, all of these things could make ministry feel like an unwanted burden. And I think some of, the, some of you who are leading in here, I think you know that. You feel that temptation all the time. Run! Just quit! Get out of it! Be done! Move on! Where the temptation sounds like this, uh, verse 2, Peter says, be shepherds not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Again, as leaders of congregations with oversight over finances and resources and maybe more over people, their talents, their abilities. The temptation is always there to take, to manipulate, to work it out for your own desires, especially when the pressure is on. But we don't do it that way around here. We stand firm around here. We are not about our own personal pocketbooks or our personal agendas. We're about our king. The temptation to run comes to leaders like this. Be shepherds, Peter says, not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. Jesus pointed out in his ministry that the way of the world was for leaders to dominate over the lead. That was their world. As the church was beginning to take flight in the, in the uh, Roman world, uh, Nero took over as a Roman Caesar during that time. And, and within a couple of years of his uh, leadership over the Roman world, he, uh, he got mad at his mom. Uh, so mad, in fact, that within a couple of years, he, um, he decided to order her death. That's a pretty fun Mother's Day present uh, for your mom. The problem was Nero didn't trust his Praetorian guard to take care of this, and so he ordered the Navy to sink the boat that she was in, which they did. But she survived, and she swam to shore. Don't you hate it when you're trying to kill your mom and she, like, survives, you know? And so he ordered his troops to do, you know, to kill her on 
the shore. That's their world, domination. Do what you're told or you'll be crushed by the person above you. And what was true in the Roman world then is often true today. It won't take you long to find language like misappropriation of power in the news headlines. It happens in businesses. It happens in government. It happens, I'm sorry to say, in churches. Especially in the last year, I've seen it time and again in churches. But elders, they are to stand firm by being an example, Peter says. Paul would later say to the Christians in Thessalonica, he says, we work in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Elders stand firm by, by loving the sheep of the congregation. Just ask any good shepherd. They'll tell you a good shepherd does not drive his sheep from behind. He stands in front and calls them to follow. We stand out front. We don't run at people from behind even when the pressure is on. Now, Peter doesn't solely address the older elders of the congregation. He also has a generational comment to younger people. Did you hear that in verse 5? He says, in the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, in a Jewish reckoning, probably anyone under 30 would be considered the younger group. And you can imagine it's possible some of those younger people are, are aiding some of the older elder, uh, elderly uh, leaders in the congregation. They're uh, directing and assisting and helping. This may even be the kind of folks we see in Acts chapter 5 where the story tells us that some younger men in the congregation were wrapping up and carrying out the bodies of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to Peter and they lied to the Holy Spirit. This is not really glamorous work here for these young leaders, but you can tell the, the readiness of them for service and leadership, you know, that, that can make them somewhat impatient, perhaps, with the current leaders of the congregation. Sometimes, you know, pastoral wisdom comes with age, and, and sometimes young leaders, they just grow impatient with that. Particularly in a time of persecution, maybe these younger people's willingness to like take radical stands would affect the whole church, and so the elders were showing caution, and Peter tells them, listen, don't run away from conversation, don't run away from consideration, don't run away even from conflict. He tells them to stand firm together. And in order to do that, younger people, it requires submission. Even when the generations disagree in the church, we stand firm together. We don't run. He ran, though. John Mark joined the mission trip team with Paul and Barnabas. You may remember that story. It was a big affair. The young church at Antioch had a big worship service, and the Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas for this mission work, and, and uh, they laid hands on them, and they sent them off, and it was wonderful. You know, they sailed for the island of Cyprus, and they were doing it, man. They were doing the mission of Jesus. They were making disciples of all nations, and, and off they went. John Mark went with them as a missions helper, as a part of their team. Paul and Barnabas preached all through the island until they got to a place called Paphos, and then something strange happened, something dark they were trying to have conversation. They were witnessing to a, a government person named Sergius Paulus, but a sorcerer in town named Elymas opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Spiritual warfare ensued, and Paul, filled with the Spirit, stared down Elymas and cursed him into blindness. Now, that's a lot to take in. That'll rattle some folks, right? I don't know if it was that. Or I don't really know all the reasons why. All I know is that at the next port of call on that mission trip, John Mark hightailed it home. He ran. 
He would later join Barnabas on another mission trip, but Barnabas and Paul, they got so sideways in disagreement about that, they even split up and they went different directions because they couldn't handle it because John Mark ran. When dark forces began to push in on them, he ran, but we don't run. Even when we think we know better, we stand humbly together. Peter writes it this way in chapter 5, verse 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, quoting Proverbs 3 here, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. When we think we know better, when we think we could do better, the easiest thing to do is to run our own direction, right? It's kind of like good old-fashioned teenage rebellion. Some of you have teenagers in your life. You know this magical time of life where for a long time as a parent or grandparent, you know, you were wise and loving and helpful, and then all of a sudden, certain years of their life, you just, you just don't know anything anymore. And your beautiful teenage son or daughter or granddaughter, all of a sudden, they know so much more than you do. And it happens to us, too. The other day, that's been maybe a couple months ago now, Jody and I were coming to a church event, so we left my two youngest sons a credit card to go get a sensible dinner somewhere, you know, and um, they decided to go to McDonald's, okay, fine, where the two of them purchased 80 chicken McNuggets (laughs) to eat between the two of them. You know, they're so much smarter than me, I mean, clearly. And you, the easy thing to do, of course, in moments when you know more than someone else is to run your own way, but we, we don't run. We stand firm, humbly. In fact, Peter offers a a beautiful picture here. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. This is the the only time uh, this word for clothe in the Greek text appears in the New Testament, and its root referred to an apron that a slave would tie over their tunic so as to keep it from being soiled. It's a slave's service garment. Put that on, Peter says, when you serve one another. Put that on as you serve your God. Just like the towel wrapped around our Savior's waist when He bent down and He washed those disciples' feet. When we are tempted to run from each other because we know better and we know more, we stand firm by putting on our serving clothes and washing each other's feet. We don't run. We we stand firm. Even, Even when we worry that the future looks bleak, And anxiety is at a fevered pitch in our city. We stand calmly with God. I I love verse 7. I think it is such a fantastic verse. I think we should should get it tattooed on our body. Who's with me? I mean, let's just, you know, come on. Nobody? All right. Well, if not, at least pay as much attention to it as you would if you were going to get it tattooed on your body. Listen to this. Peter says to the church, cast all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. Do you hear it? 
Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It doesn't matter how nasty the headlines read. It doesn't matter how many taxes are levied on us. It doesn't matter how many crises the Kardashians are facing in the current season. The world is in his hands, and he cares for us. So we don't have to run in fear. We can stand firmly in faith by casting all our anxieties on him. Again, Peter uses a beautiful uh, language here. Uh, This word for casting is only used in Luke 19 one other time where the disciples there cast their cloaks on the back of a donkey so that Jesus had a saddle to ride into town. It's the same image. You cast your anxieties onto God's back because guess what? He's strong enough to bear it. So we don't have to worry, Jesus taught us, about what we need in life. We don't have to worry about food or clothes, he said, because God, he cares for the birds of the field or the birds of the air and the the lilies of the field. And so how much more does he care for you, his disciple, his child? He cares for you. So when pressure hits, especially in a, a culture that feels more secularizing. Don't let anxiety win. Don't let the belief win that you've got to take care of it yourself. Let trust win. Psalm 62, I think, puts it better than I ever could. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Maybe this week you need to take a few moments to pour your heart out to this God. He's big enough to take it. Because we don't run. We stand firm. And here's why. Verse 10 of 1 Peter 5. And the God of all grace, who called you, look at this language, how long? To eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered, how long? A little while. You see the difference? This God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. See, the the general of our army has not abandoned his troops. There is suffering for a little while in this community, but the battle is temporary. So running and deserting and abandoning our God is not an option for us. We don't run. We stand. And the reason we stand is because our God, he will restore us. The language is he will establish us, he will put us in order, even through suffering, even through trouble, even through difficult days, God will produce a, a restored character in us. He will make us firm and strong and steadfast. He will lift us up, he will support us, he will settle us on a firm foundation. Nothing that comes against us will knock us back. We stand because the one who has planned and the one who has promised is also the one who has the power. Our God stands. Our God leans in through persecution, through suffering, even in paradise or in strength. In all times, He leans in. He stands firm. Be like that God, Southside. Lean into Him. Stand with us in this secular Springfield. Stand firm in your faith because that is what we do. We stand in Him. Let's pray. We know there's an enemy, Father, and we know sometimes we ourselves are our own worst enemy, but I pray that today you'd inspire us to be a people who stand in you. In this moment and in this place, as we sing these songs, may we stand in you. As we make our way out of this place and we find ourselves maybe in hostile places or hostile conversations, help us to stand in you. And Father, as James put it, help us to submit to you in each and every moment of our week 
resisting the devil and watching him run. May we stand firm, Lord Jesus, because you first stood firm against all the powers and defeated them in your cross and in your resurrection proves that the God of all grace called us to eternal glory in Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus, in this we pray. Amen.